2: presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
3: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Leftset's Podcast. My guest today is a man who truly needs no introduction, a man who's played every role in the music business, the one and only Irving Azoff. Irving, good to have you here to be here, Bob. So, what's really going on with the live business? Are we back? Are we not back? Are we going to have to
2: have vaccine passports? How do you see it? We're not going to have vaccine passports. Um, the 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 thing that you know has has unimpressed me. Shall we say? Is as we were in the in the depths of this, there was all this talk about all these people running around. We're gonna have testing machines. And can you test a person every 20 seconds or 90 seconds before they walk in the building? And they're gonna require that before we can go. And then it was we're gonna have, you're gonna have a put on your device, you know, a, a vaccine passport. And and what I'm finding is none of the above. When you go to a venue, I've been to a well-known venue called Staples Center for a Laker basketball game, um, and you arrive, and they say, uh, "Need to see your vaccine card." Okay, and you pull out your phone, and the guy looks at it for about ten seconds, doesn't match your name <laughs> against the card or anything. So um, you know our government blew: wear a mask, don't wear a mask; wash your hands, don't wash your hands. And now they've blown, you know, at all levels: federal, state, health. We have no plan. It's 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 total chaos out there. So I think it hurts uh, consumer confidence on whether to attend a show. Um, and you know that's just you know in addition to you know musicians basically being the bottom of the heap uh, in terms of uh, um, assistance financial assistance for their crews and them during this uh, pandemic. Um, they haven't even come up with a decent plan to protect us or protect the fans or give people confidence to come back to shows. Now, does that mean that people aren't going to come? Of course they're going to come, but they're not. I don't think they're going to come um, in the numbers that they would have had we had a cohesive vaccination uh, passport plan.
3: So, are there any issues of liability on the behalf of the promoter of the act? Is, are you hesitant to book your acts until you see what ultimately plays out?
2: Look, it's the, it's the wild, wild west. Um, I don't think anybody's really worried about liability. You know, and we've got some states all already passing no liability laws. Um, California, who had the strictest um, lockdown laws, um, now suddenly... As I understand it, if you're going to go into a music venue, um, it's the honor system. You have to say I've either been vaccinated or tested in the last 48 hours. Uh, so, you know, what, what's what's somebody going to sue for that for? I mean, you know, it's crazy.
3: Okay, but in terms of booking your acts, where are you that? Where are you on that? When are your acts going to start hitting the boards?
2: The gardens opening Madison Square Gardens opening June seventeenth with the Foo Fighters that 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 was up and sold out already. Uh, the second shows in the garden are the Eagles on August I think twenty two and twenty four. Um, there's an announcement coming at the forum for a mid July date. Um, so you know Jimmy Buffett's opening his tour on July eighth in Nashville. Um, people are going you know and uh, and uh, it's hard. If you're a you know an A-level arena or stadium act that you have to go build a huge production because you can't be sure um, of what of what's going to happen. So you know the you know um, the really the really big tours are being very wary. Most of them are just holding off till next year. Okay, so
3: let's talk about your management company. You started in management. Explain it to me. Jeffrey runs it. Where are you involved, et cetera?
2: Well, we're a private company, Bob. So we're not big on titles. So nobody really runs it. Um, we're a group of uh, very talented managers, um, and uh, and uh, you know, we have teams of people on each account. But it, you know, a manage you can't run a management business like a real business. You know, I mean, as you know, we as, as you know, most of us in the business don't feel that we really have jobs. You know, we really do this because we love it. Um, but yeah, my my son Jeffrey is very talented. Uh, I think he's one of the best managers I've ever known. So yeah, he's he's got a group of managers around him who are, have been incredibly successful. Okay, so uh,
3: at Full Stop, is what the management company is called now, what's the derivation of that? Why is it called Full Stop?
2: Um, Full Stop was a company founded by Harry Styles and Jeffrey Azoff that... Uh, merged with, I don't know what was I calling mine Azov music management, I think. and and uh, it uh, you know who needs the, you know we don't have a case of geffenitis. We didn't need the name on the door. So full stop was uh, full stop was fine. so I love the name. Okay, it's kind of an en- English term, you know, from in the war, you know at the end of the at the end of the wires that would come in, it would say full stop. That's how you knew when it was over. So I, I I don't know the derivation. There's something English about it. You'd have to ask Carrie or Jeffrey.
3: Okay. How many acts are under the full stop banner at this particular point in time? I don't know.
2: I never counted. We don't publish artist rosters. I really don't know.
3: Ballpark 20, 30, 50? I don't know.
2: More. I'd say closer to 30 than 20 or 50.
3: Okay. How many people work for full stop?
2: I don't know. What is this, the IRS? I mean, what's going on here, Bob?
3: Um, no, no, no. I, these are <laughs> things people want to know. I, you know. I'm not writing it down to you know to write a
2: book. It's just to, to get an idea. I would guess there are far more people that work there than clients. So, uh, you know, probably 75 to 100, maybe. And
3: are they all there in Westwood at this point, or is everybody spread out?
2: Uh, well, we were spread out before, you know, uh, but uh, – um, it's really interesting because if you go into a management office in the middle of the summer especially and there's a lot of people there you know it's not going well because we by nature touring being you know a vast majority of the earnings uh, for our artists you know, most you know people are on the road, people are out um, you know so uh, you know p- we don't care where people live. We've got people we got people in Nashville, we got people in New York, we got people in Scottsdale. People, you know, people living up in the Bay Area, people living in the desert.
3: Okay. Needless to say, you are the most experienced manager extant. To what degree are you focused on mentoring the other people at full stop? Or is pretty much everybody going their own way and just gleaning your great moves and acting accordingly?
2: Um, uh, we think we have an incredible culture, Um You know, this isn't frontline management where we, you know, um, which, as you know, because we've talked about it a lot, but for your listeners, we may not have When You know, when we, you know, frontline management was founded at a time when there was a lot of consolidation going on in the business. And I was starting over in the management business after having left the record business. And and we found that no matter how big the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac were, you weren't going to fight the consolidation in the business. Um, So we got other like-minded managers to that we acquired or merged with, um, but full stop is a business that's been grown out of culture. So we're not interested in acquiring other managers. We kind of it's all everything's homegrown. You know, um, we've got incredible people and managers who have worked up through the rants. It's a great place for for somebody interested in the managing business to work because you're gonna you're gonna grow and you're gonna learn it and you're gonna you're gonna become successful and wealthy doing it. But we have a culture. Um, you know, uh, rule one. Is uh, always make the right decision for your artists, and it'll be the right decision for your business. So you don't think short term; we think long term. Rule two is see rule one, um, and that's uh, that's that's kind of how uh, how we run it. You know, none of us can sell a ticket, um, uh, and we love it. and if, And if you don't, you know, my advice is if you don't love uh, artists and uh, the craziness that comes with it, don't do it. Let's
3: talk about leverage, which you referenced. You famously lined up certain clients so you had power against the labels or vis-a-vis the labels. Same deal when Live Nation, then called Clear Channel, was moving up. You helped form a competitor, AEG. Can you tell us about those experiences in your strategies?
2: Um, It was survival. I mean, back in those days... It, we, it was shrinking from like twelve to five record labels. Now we're basically down to the three majors, but with some wonderful independent action going on now uh, outside of it. Um, there was big consolidation at retail, you know, because this was even pre You know, it was even pre CDs and early days of CDs uh, when we when we did that. And um, there was consolidation in promoters, you know, because Bob Sillerman, which was the primary. It wasn't really about the labels as much as it was the live side of the business. And Bob Sillerman had come along and uh, you know and rolled up a whole bunch of these big promoters and sold them to Clear Channel Radio, uh, and in those days it was called Clear Channel. Um, and and I woke up one day uh, and I'd restarted my business and I believe I was managing the Eagles and Journey. And I got into a big beef with a couple of promoters that were running Clear Channel at the time, who were my friends who I'd done business with for thirty years. And I said, I got to get bigger fast. I'm not going to be able to, you know. No matter how, you know, I should I should quit because I can't I can't get fair deals for my artists. Um, so that's that was the the reason for putting together Frontline.
3: And what about uh,
2: helping in the creation of AEG? Um, that was that was to level the playing field as well in those days. And <clears throat> you know, Tim Lewicki, who um, who I met in 1999 when he was building Staples. Um, Understood the content game and said we want to be in it, and I felt that. Uh, and I had uh, uh, invested in a company called Concerts West, not the original, big Concerts West, but some guys that had, in Gongaware and Meglin who'd split off from the original. You know when Concerts West folded, and Terry Bassett uh, gave them the name so that the, the the company name would go on. So I I had invested in those guys, and in those days I'd invested in uh, Golden Voice and Coachella. Um, and then we, we kind of put together uh, Golden Voice, Coachella, and uh, uh, Concerts West to start AEG Live.
3: Okay, let's stay with the live business. This is a business where those on the inside know what's going on. Those on the outside are clueless. Ticket masters paid to take the heat. But as a manager, we've discussed a number of issues relative to the buildings. Tickets on the manifest what leverage they're employing. Can you go a little
2: deeper into that? Um, Tickets on the manifest off the manifest. what do you want to know? Yeah. Yeah.
3: We were taught, we were talking that the buildings are withholding tickets and wanting certain commitments in order to take the date or for you to play the date.
2: Um, There were, you know, Bob, it's really been cleaned up recently. Uh, Over the years though, um, so, like, if you if you landed on Earth from Mars, how a, a record contract is written or paid, or how a live contract is written or paid, it would never look this way. When Fred Rosen um, took over and 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 made and switched, we had a company in those old days called Ticketron that he kind of put out of business. And the difference between Ticketron and Ticketmaster was it was an all-in ticket price during the Ticketron days and then you would pay them a dollar and a half or two bucks for selling your ticket. Rosen came along and said to the buildings, instead of you paying a dollar and a half to two bucks to Ticketron, I'll pay you, but I'm going to put a service charge on top. So he, he they inflated the price of tickets and and basically took a piece of the artist's gross and and started paying the buildings. So then, you know, so as things happen, so then we as managers and agents then said, okay, but we're not going to pay you rent, right? So then when we weren't paying them rent, they said, okay, but we've got these seats that we sold as, I don't know, sponsor seats, club seats, you know, whatever you want, you want to call them. And, uh, you know, the, and, and that's what helped us finance the improvements on our building. So those seats don't exist, meaning, yeah, we're going to, they're sold and we're going to put people in them, but they're sold by the year. Then suddenly, buildings started with suites. So, so through the years, it's just a moving of the same money around. Okay, you know, uh, you know, a, a standard ninety ten or ninety five five deal with an artist. If a promoter had to live off of just that, um, there'd be no, you know, there would be no Live Nation, there'd be no AG, there'd be no promoters. So, so then it comes down to oh, but we have to have rebates, and we have to have ticket service fees, and we have then then somebody invented the facility fee. Which was supposed to pay a state government or something, a tax, but it wasn't a tax. It was to pay off your loan for having built the building. But no, no two buildings have the same economics. But, um, um, you know, since, you know, listen, um, Michael Rapino is committed to a fair count. Okay. And, and between him um, and, and pressure, and, and look, buildings are not the enemy. You know, buildings don't make nearly the kind of money that people think, okay? So, um, and there's a lot of people that would take tickets off the manifest. You know, in this order, I would say the the stub hubs of the world are the the worst, okay? Because they have no skin in the game and they've got people that get a hold of tickets and they take a big chunk. Um, You know, buildings taking tickets, you know, manifest, tickets off the manifest, except, you know, that's kind of gone away, especially for a big act. Okay, and then of course you've got acts that are doing it themselves. So um, it's the wild, wild west out there.
3: Okay, so let's today, today if you play an arena, 15,000 seats, how many of those seats are in the deal with the act and how many just never show
2: up? Well, I, I, can, I can tell you at the forum, every seat's on the manifest, okay? I can tell you that um, in most buildings, Every seat's on the manifest except for the suites. Okay. Now, on a big show, they might try and put four extra stools in the suites and sell them. But the buildings are being really cool now, so they're kind of telling you, and they're gonna they're gonna pay you or split that money with you on those seats. Um, It's it's gotten clean. It's gotten a lot cleaned up. There are there are a few buildings uh, that still have some 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 unmanifested seats, and their claim is. Look, the way we built this building was with the money from these suite holders. We took these massive several hundred thousand dollar year commitment for people to have these suites. And that's what allowed us to go have the money to go get financed so we can build the building. Um and and what so so what goes on is with the exception of the suites, it's pretty clean out there with the buildings now. There's a few, and what they claim is, well, for the suites that are behind the stage and can't see, that's why we have these unmanifested seats to move these people down there. But of course, we find them listed on the secondary a lot of times, and you don't know if it was the guys in the suite that listed it or the building that listed it. But every time we find that, we clean it up real quickly. And um, all in all, the building side of the business is very clean. The Ticketmaster side of the business is very clean. The secondary is very dirty. Okay, before we get to
3: the secondary, let's just, just you talk. You know, ninety five five, ninety ten. Can you explain, since you certainly uh, worked at Live Nation, where are the profit verticals for the promoter?
2: Um, well, at Live Nation, they have a wonderful sponsor. You know, have uh, th- this the sponsorship branding arm um, is you know they're allowed. La- you know th- that that isn't shared. Okay so that they make their money that way they you know and and certainly when they own venues they're making it off the popcorn and the beer and the parking and and, and stuff like that but on the straight promoter line the the money the money's probably, you know it's it the, the money's made you know off a piece off a piece of the ticket
3: okay what's the status of the secondary market today
2: in um uh, we'll see post covid you know um stubhub and those you know Whereas Live Nation and AG, uh, when COVID hit, were saying, if you'd like a refund, here's your cash. StubHub basically issued credits, okay? So coming out of COVID, I'm hoping these guys have maybe shot themselves in the foot because when the consumer realizes that he can't get his cash back from these people, maybe people will realize them for the pariahs that they are. Now, you've certainly come up with ways to beat the scalpers. You came up with
3: platinum and you told me once, you know, find someone who complains about paying, you know, $500 to sit in the first 10 rows for the Eagles. You can't find them.
2: So Well, well, here, well here, look, here, here's what it is. You got to price your tickets right. I mean, if, if you're an act and you think your, your fan's going to love you more because you charge less money and then somebody buys six tickets and gives and sells four of them on the secondary… You know, when, when you go to a concert, you don't turn, it's not, you know, when you get on an airplane, you don't get to the person next to you and say, how much did you pay for your ticket? I paid more than you. Oh, I'm pissed off. It's just a fact of life. When you, when you walk in a building, nobody turns to the guy next to him and says, where'd you get your ticket and how much did you pay? They just know what they paid and whether they thought it was worth it. You know, and the great thing. Is that we can dynamically price now, and, and if you if an act will price their tickets right, so you have a chance to charge in the upper deck and the seats behind the stage a very small amount of money, so that more of your real fans they can pick where they want to sit in the building, where what they can afford, um, and you know if, if if acts would just price their tickets right, the only people that ever complain about. Tickets being priced too high were the press who got their tickets for free anyway, you know. And 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 you know we're in a new era where more and more acts are not afraid to price their tickets right. Platinum, it's just that's just pricing your tickets right. Only when you when you go on Ticketmaster, it says it's a hundred and fifty dollar and a hundred and seventy five dollar ticket, but they know to go to Platinum and there's some five hundred dollar tickets. It's just in a way for an act to say I didn't charge five hundred dollars for my ticket. They're fucking kidding themselves. Okay, let's talk
3: about OVG, the Oakview Group. What exactly is OVG?
2: Uh, Oakview Group is a uh, a company that's primarily owned by Tim Lywicki, uh the Liwickki family and the Aza family, uh, funded with and partnered with Silver Lake, uh, a, a wonderful um, one of the biggest private equity companies in the world. Um, and we have um, um, we're committed to building, New arenas and maybe other kinds of venues at some point, um, and taking over certain existing arenas and renovating them. And what we're committed is to you know buildings that are built uh, for the future, not the past. For instance, in our you know in our buildings, uh, if you know you got a sports tenant, so there being one backstage and music being an afterthought, where you just get to go use the visiting team, v- visiting NBA or hockey teams' dressing room. There's Full sets of dressing rooms, like at the Forum, for music, and a full set of dressing rooms for sports. Right, we're we're trying to say that music is a tenant and just as important as sports. Um and uh and the right the, and the right mix of premium and great experiences in the building. People want to experience more than just the concert now in a building. So um you know and we we're opening in Seattle in mid October. We're opening in New York at, the, at UBS, you know, UBS uh, Belmont Park, the home of the Islanders. Seattle's the home of the Kraken. Uh, and we're opening in, uh, in Austin in April of 2022. Um, and then uh, the next couple to come online are Manchester, England, and uh, Palm Springs, California.
3: Now, haven't you also uh, created a group of buildings where you share information and there are other initiatives you have as a whole?
2: Yeah, the uh, the arena alliance. So if you're a big national brand, you're probably not going to just go to Salt Lake and and if you're if you're Walmart, you're probably not going to go do a dealing. Uh, you know, you don't have anybody in the field. There's going to Walmart's going to do a deal with the building in Salt Lake. Okay, they like to buy nationally. So you've got these billionaires that own the hockey and the NBA teams, but they're not getting any national brands. So what we do is people for people like PetSmart and Walmart, you know, they're we offer it to all our buildings, so we're able to create national, in you know, national brand income for these buildings that they wouldn't have, and we share information for routing purposes, um, and you know, and, and and stuff like that. So we help these buildings uh, get booked. Um, we help them on you know, as we went through the COVID protocol, where we you know, we help help people through their safety stuff. It's it's a consulting arm. Um, and, and, um, you know, we're not, you know, the arena Alliance are not promoters. Um, you know, we don't book the buildings, they book themselves, but we, you know, we, we make sure to get all the information out, out for them. Um, but we, but we're creating these national brands. It's, it's, it's cash flow positive in each building. Okay. Let's go back to Silver Lake. Silver Lake, you know, huge venture firm. They
3: ultimately want their money back. Whether it be going public or someone replacing them, is that sort of built into the OVG relationship?
2: Mm, no, it's not. Okay, and they haven't said to you they're 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 savvy investors. Um, they're just encouraging us to grow the business because they like what we what they see. Okay, let's
3: talk about selling, just in general, not just OVG. Right. You've certainly, have someone who has sold your management company a number of times, and you've represented people who sold things. When do you think you should sell and when do you think you should hold on?
2: You know, um, there's a lot of questions that go into that. Um, family estate planning being one. Uh, and, you know, and and are there errors around to, to keep running these companies that want to do it and that you believe in can do it? Um, uh, and, you know, and but if you're building brands for your artists, most of those people are building it to sell. So if that's what you're... That, that's what you're uh, referring to. But, you know, um, we never start a business going, hey, we're going to f- sell this. It just happens. Um, but in terms of in terms of the management business, I never, you know, I merged more than I sold. You know, we merged people together in Frontline. Uh, then we merged with Ticketmaster. Then we merged Ticketmaster in Frontline with Live Nation. Um, so, you know, so then when I left... Um, you know, frontline stayed. So that group of managers stayed, and I started over.
3: Yeah, but also when you went to MCA, didn't they
2: pay you for frontline? Uh, about three years in, they paid me for frontline. They bought frontline. What was what was the logic of three years? Uh, there was an existing consent decree from the old MCA days. Uh, they didn't. They didn't want me spending my day my time on management. I I would have been happy not to sell. They they wanted me to spend all my time. I you know at that point I was running the record company. We were building amphitheaters. I was running their video business. Uh, they didn't want me compromised and you know running around to shows all over the world.
3: Okay, let's go back to the cell. If someone is not estate planning and you represent that act now with these huge multiples for uh, publishing catalogs,
2: what do you tell them? Um, there's a lot of questions you have to ask people. Um, do you have heirs? Do you hate your kids? Are you worried that your kids are going to screw up your legacy? Do you have things you want to buy? Uh, even at these multiples, if you're just going to take the money and throw it in treasury bills or stuff that's really safe, your cash flow every year is the same or more holding, right? But if if you really want to, you know, have things that you want to buy with the money, or you know, for guys in their mid seventies. That are, that are struggling to make ends meet, they can't tour anymore, why shouldn't they sell for a big, huge check? Okay, I don't, you know, and, and then again, for guys like Ryan Tedder, who are as hot as hell are going to write more hits, you know, if his family can enjoy the benefits of him selling his, what he's written to date, because he knows he's going to sell, you know, write more going forward, why not? It works for some people, doesn't work for others. But as you're seeing, whether you're Paul Simon, or you're Neil Young, or you're Bob Dylan, um, you know, the, these people are, you know, I understand every one of them wanting to sell and why. And as you know, uh, you know we're—it's um, not our primary business. But when you know, um, I'd rather my family um, own royalties from the works of the Beach Boys or Linda Ronstadt or or David Crosby than uh, uh, you know buy a treasury bill. So that's why I'm in that business. Okay, let's talk about iconic. Uh, you have relationships with those three
3: uh, entities. Do you own them hundred percent? Is it your personal money? Is it somebody else's money?
2: We uh, um, on 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 the on the Beach Boys, we're a partnership with the Beach Boys, with us being the controlling partner in certain in certain masters, recorded uh, music, flow, uh, royalties, publishing, writing. It depends. You know, they have a very complex thing. So we kind of we're we're so we're the controlling shareholder there. Uh, in the case of Linda Ronstadt, um, we bought her master's and her flow of her recording income. Uh, and in the case of David Crosby, we bought his recording and his and his publishing and writing.
3: Now, needless to say, there are a lot of elderly classic rock legendary acts. You have three. How many might you ultimately end up with?
2: I don't know. We… Um, uh, the you know obviously the return on investment is not good if you just pay hundred percent cash for these things. So um, we were fortunate enough um, to be able to uh, get some debt rated uh, and sold some debt uh, to a company that that likes to own debt, so that you know we have um, a substantial line of credit. In that area to you know we put up we put up some some equity but then we have we don't, you, know, you don't borrow 100% on anything but um so we have so we have resources available and when we see the right things um we'll announce a couple more deals soon but it it you know they're all very predictable they're my you know so far i haven't done i haven't done a deal with a client you know it's been with friends um, but they're, they're predictable deals. You'll see us do more. You know, we believe that, um, we have something to add. I'm not going to buy anything that we don't believe we can't make the cash flow bigger. Um, we encourage, um, some of these, uh, uh, you know, artists to stay in. I'd rather buy half than all of it because I think I can make their half worth, you know, a lot more. Plus they've gotten the capital gain on the first half that they sold. Um, but, you know, we've we've we built and we're building out an incredible marketing staff. Um, we'll make some announcements on some exciting things on the Beach Boys. Um, you know, they spent the last I don't know how many decades fighting with each other, um, and a lot of missed opportunities. We're making up for lost time. And I'm and I'm I'm just uh, I'm a Beach Boys freak. It was one of the fir- it was the first real show I ever attended when I was a kid, uh, and I just uh, I just think that that there's incredible upside in the Beach Boys.
3: When you talk about iconic and you look at your other enterprises, is there any advantage in mass and market share in the legacy business? I don't think so.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future.
1: It's got standard third row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: And then let's go into GMR. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you, of all people, suddenly came up with the idea and where we are now on global rights management.
2: Um. It's it's no secret that I, uh, I I hitched my star to two guys named Glenn Fry and Don Henley uh, throughout all my career, uh, and a lot of what has motivated me to do things has been things that I that they've either taught me or that we experienced together. Um, and there was a there was a time on YouTube where some satanic minister was using Hotel California under one of his crazy satanic bullshit things so you know you you know you know the whackable job at at, at uh, youtube so you send a letter they take it down pops back up then you have to send a lawyer's letter they take it down pops back up then you have to kind of really get into a process improve you know uh, improve stuff before youtube will take it down and what we found out was this satanic minister had gone to the uk uh, to PRS, the 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 uh, society there, um, and I believe we were with BMI at the time. So BMI or ASCAP, I'm not sure because we went back and forth. But basically, BMI or ASCAP had given blanket rights, right? So in the United States, if you want to put a song in a play, or you want to put a song in your you know in a play at at a high school, you got to get permission. Well, the, the YouTube had a blanket license. YouTube and, and this guy went and got a blanket license from the UK from the performing rights society. So now suddenly you could use the Eagles song and a satanic message on YouTube and you didn't need any permission and we couldn't stop it. So, and then I started looking into it, you know, and then I, I would see you can't audit ASCAP or BMI when, you know, uh, no right to audit. You can't sue them. And, and I would get statements for all my acts with just a check, and I'd go. Well, what's this based on? And the answer is, you just shut up and cash it. So, um, so we started the first private uh, performing rights organization in 75 years. We promptly got sued by the radio music licensing cartel uh, and all that. But it's been a, a great ride. We're wildly successful. Um, we've signed you know major writer after major writer. Our writers, our rate card is higher. Our our people make more money. It's transparent. Um, You can go on the website and say, hey, I got played four times on KISS FM and this is how much money I made. Um, So it's been a great business. Um, And we feel like we've made the world a better place for these riders.
3: How much more would I get if I switched from on a traditional ASCAP BMI to your company?
2: Um, Hard to say in a blanket answer, but we did have... Uh, we do have deals where we've guaranteed people you'll make ten or twenty percent more. Wow, um, for sure, but I think we make people in most instances way more.
3: Okay, you own two restaurants. You own a certain amount of real estate. how how much of your time and how much of your investments in real estate?
2: Uh, okay, I don't own any I don't own any restaurants. Those are Shelley's. Okay. Every, everything's in the well. The family owns the restaurants, but Shelly Let, runs them. I'll leave it at that. Shelly yeah, okay. runs them. Okay, so Nate Now's seventy-five-year-old uh, restaurant in Beverly Hills uh, was in jeopardy of uh, becoming extinct. You know, the Beverly Hills real estate worth had pretty much made it extinct. So through a through a labor of love, we and some other family friends um, have taken it over. Uh, even pre-COVID, you know, we have the right to lose money, but. We have a mean matzo bra and a great corned beef and a great matzo ball soup. Uh, The apple pan, similar situation where we got a call um, and um, the the family that had owned it wanted another family in the restaurant business to kind of take it over that had some hamburger uh, history. We'd had some history with five guys corn uh, capshaw and myself and a group that included Phil Mickelson and a bunch of others that owned a bunch of five guys restaurants together um so we kind of it kind of fell into it but it, it's for fun and community and uh um you know one eagles date's going to make us more than a year at a year at the restaurant uh and as far as real estate goes um we're not heavily invested, but but we have invested in the years in everything from apartment buildings to office buildings, and um, you kind of hang on and never sell those.
3: Okay, in terms of things that you where your money is invested and taking up your time, is there anything else in your portfolio that I haven't mentioned?
2: Um, let's think. Oak, uh, Oakview GMR management business, uh, iconic and. Uh, we're in the process now of starting a record label and music publishing company.
3: And your thoughts in creating those were?
2: Um, pretty simple. You know, you, you um, again, I think uh, we want to be an alternative to the majors because I believe that uh, artists should own their IP. So we're going to be a, 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 a different model a more artist friendly model, economic model. Um, and when you look at uh you know, Universal's worth, what, $40, 50000000000 $60 billion? I don't know what the number's going to be when they go public. Right. Warners is trading at, what, $20, 30000000000 $20 billion, something like that. Sony's probably worth somewhere in between. So you're over $100 billion. Um, you know, artists like to do business with us because we're very artist-friendly. We proved at GMR that we can sign. Um, we've uh, landed an incredible talent in... Uh, uh, to go with my son Jeffrey and with uh, Sean Tubby holiday, who's an incredibly gifted AR and r guy. Um, and we've started to sign. Um, and, you know, we kind of think if, if we can't, you know, get 2% of the market, we're idiots. So what's 2% of the market worth $2 billion.
3: <laughs> and what kind of deals are you offering, you know, 50, 50 on streaming revenue, who owns
2: the asset? Well, the, the, uh, We'll be a profit participant for a number of years, um, but the artist will always have a right to buy us out at fair market value. Okay. Or the, or or it's either a term or a right to buy out depending on which the artist prefers. And then in
3: terms of net, how's the net split?
2: Um, certain, you know, it depends on who it is and what it is and when it is in their career, but we won't be doing 360 deals and asking for pieces of touring and pieces of, uh, uh, of all that stuff. But, you know, if you're, a major established artist. I'm not, you know, we're not going to ask for anywhere near 50, 50.
3: Okay. Let's go back
2: to the beginning. So
3: originally you're from Illinois. Where are you from?
2: Uh, I was, I was born in Chicago. Uh, was raised in a little town called Danville. Illinois. Uh went to oh, a little bit
3: slower. A little bit slower. How far is Danville from Chicago? Uh,
2: 130 miles. So what's Do Danville
3: self. what's Danville like? Are you growing up in the sticks or is
2: it like up to date? Uh town of about thirty, forty thousand people. Um a lot of, you know, plants, you know, there was a GM plant, Heister. There was a, I think there was a I forget who the big cereal company was there. Um, but uh yeah, it was mostly an industrial one, right on the Illinois, Indiana border. Um, but for some reason it had uh there was a lady that taught at the high school for years and uh uh they had a real good arts program you know dick van dyke jerry van dyke bobby short gene hackman all came from danville illinois um so that's where i grew up and then 30 whoa, miles whoa, whoa, west whoa, whoa, of there
3: whoa, whoa, whoa. what'd your father do for a living
2: uh my father was a pharmacist and had a share in a couple of pharmacies my mom was a bookkeeper
3: okay and how many kids in the family
2: Brother and sister. I was the oldest.
3: You were the oldest. Okay. You go to school. You go to public school, I assume? Oh, yeah. Okay. You go to public school. Are you the class clown? Are you the troublemaker? Are you the silent? Are you popular? What's your role in school?
2: Straight A's, class clown.
3: And you could get away with it because you're so smart? Guess so. Okay. You have a va- a big interest in sports. Were you an athlete?
2: No, no, no. No.
3: No. I mean, did you forget the team? Did My you play friend, down the street?
2: Uh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. We played. You know, we, yeah, all summer we played baseball in the park, you know, played basketball poorly. Basketball, baseball.
3: Okay. So now you're in high
2: school. How do
3: you fit in in high
2: school? Well, there were, I think, eight of us Jewish kids in the whole school. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but we fit in, you know. I mean, were you a manager?
3: Were you the guy who's rounding people up even back then?
2: Yeah, by the time I was a, a senior in high school, you know, my friends were in bands. I you know, I tried. I couldn't sing. I tried drums. I tried saxophone. Remember, in those days, you had to learn an instrument as part of it. Yeah, I, you know, I wasn't gifted as a as a musician. So then I just started kind of, my friends were all in, were in bands. So um, I kind of started the business side of it. So I started booking bands when I was in high school.
3: Okay, but you also told me that you were representing the DJs at WLS. That's later. That you're already in college when that happens? Correct. Okay. Uh, now, needless to say, somewhat like myself, you're somewhat vertically challenged. What was the experience of being in school? Did you make that work for you? Was Did you take uh, abuse?
2: I was. Uh, no, I, I was good in high school, and I liked it. Uh, it I but when I got to college, I went. You know, my dad was a pharmacist, so my parents decided I should be a doctor. So I I go to the University of Illinois in Champaign, thirty miles away. I go there for a couple reasons. I go there because I already had this booking business going, so I knew how I was going to put my way through school. Um, two, I i uh, I had applied at UCLA, uh, where my and my my grandmother and my, I had aunts and uncles out here. Uh, and I applied at John Hopkins, uh, and I got accepted at all three. Um, I was going to come to you uh, at at very one various different points. I decided I was going to each one of those, and then at the at the end of the day, I just decided uh, that I loved booking bands and stuff, and I'd already started a business there, so I stayed and went to the University of Illinois. Okay,
3: what was the status of your band booking business by time you graduate from high school?
2: And local bands, you know, a bunch of local bands. We were playing, you know, renting halls and collecting the money,
3: you know, playing sock ops. What was your deal with the bands and how much money could you make?
2: Oh, you know, in those days you were playing for union scale and stuff. So, you know, the band was making uh, $110 and I was getting, you know, 11 bucks on top or something. It was crazy. Okay, so you go to college,
3: you're a freshman, you walk onto campus, then what happens?
2: Uh, I met a crazy guy that booked bands there, but booked college bands, a guy named Robert Nutt, N-U-T-T. And he he and I started an agency called Blytham Limited, B-L-Y-T-H-M Limited, some street Uh, in England.
3: Why was it called that?
2: It's a street in England. Bob had been to England with one of the one of the one of our artists, the guy in the Finchley Boys, and it was a street in England that he remembered. Um, and we just kind of took the the college circuit by storm. You know, there were, those days, University of Illinois had fifty six fraternities and like twenty eight sororities and like three beer bars. Right, so we had a lot of gigs to go around. And there weren't enough local bands to do it. So, we had bands coming in from all over the tri-state area that we would book. And then we grew a business. We expanded the business out there. We opened we opened offices in Madison, Wisconsin, and Chicago, and Champaign. So, by the time I was a sophomore in college, you know, I didn't have any time for school. And I was making more money than a doctor ever could. So, uh, you know, that was it. Okay. A whoa, 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 whoa. little bit slower. How much money
3: were you making? This is the late 60s. Mm, hundreds of thousands a year. That's net to you, yeah. That's a lot of money, especially in back then. Days. Yeah, and then, and then what did your parents say when nice Jewish boy drops out of college?
2: Um, they were very happy to move in the new house I bought him. No problem. Okay, Mr. Nutt, who you're working with, is
3: he making as much money as you? Oh yeah. Okay, and you're the two principals. There's no one else with no. you. Okay, no. how do you end up representing the WLS DJs?
2: Um so WLS was this powerhouse in Chicago 100,000 watt or what, 10,000 watt I don't know what the number was was it 100,000 watts It was 100 Something, Yeah 100,000 watts you could you could hear it all over the midwest you could hear it in Nashville it was like Actually I, I think guess, it was
3: 50 was as much as you could have 50 Yeah okay 50, so 50,000
2: watts but you know the three big stations in the world were WABC uh KHJ in LA and WLS in Chicago right uh so um if you so, there were this chain. There were all these clubs up around Chicago. This one of their ex DJs, a guy named Dex Card. Dex Card's Wild Goose Clubs. So he had like seven of these clubs. So what you would do to get you couldn't afford as a as a little club promoter, you couldn't afford advertising on WLS. But WLS allowed their DJs to go out and MC these shows, and then they had a they had spots that they ran all the time where we go. Tonight at Dex Cards Wild Goose in Joliet, Illinois, you can see Three Dog Night with Larry Lujak, right? And so all these disc jockeys, and and by the way, and when you'd bring them down to the, you know, to the the prom at uh, Danville High School, they were draws. They were a big deal. So it was legitimate. I mean, that you booked these guys, but you'd always book them with, uh, you know, with an act. So the act, you'd book, you'd package the act and the DJ together. And, uh, and that's kind of how it started
3: yeah well tell me the story tell my audience story about your meeting with Morris Levy
2: um, one of our bands uh, from Champaign Illinois at the University of Illinois with a big band on campus was a band called the One-Eyed Jacks um, and and Bob Nutt had gotten them uh, up in Chicago and there was a, an jingle ad agency guy that had a studio and they'd recorded a record the name of which i can't even remember right now and art roberts who was the program director at wls um loved the song and he said i'm gonna play this and so i said well it's great that you're gonna play it um how do i get a record label in those days, you'd have distributors like Allstate in Chicago distributed Columbia records, and this one and that one. And he says, "I'll help you get a, I'll help you get a record deal, okay?" And so he says, "We're going to go to New York." Uh, he says, "I'm going to get you a lawyer, and we're going to go play this. The fact that I'm willing to put this record on WLS, you're going to get a record deal." He says, "And my ears are good. This is going to be a smash." I mean, he really believed in the record. This wasn't, you know, an under-the-table anything, right? Um, so, I, um, my mom was afraid to fly. If we took a vac- vacation to Florida, we drove. So, I'm 18, 19 years old. At the point. I think I was 19, maybe. Never been on an airplane. My first plane flight to go to New York with Art Roberts, um, and we hired this lawyer named Mort Farber, who uh, at the time represented, I think, like Engelbert Hunkerdink and a, a bunch of people. And he sets up two meetings. One we go to uh, we go to see Atlantic Records, Jerry Greenberg at the time, and we play we play the record for Jerry. Jerry says it's a nice record. I'd have to hear more. I'm not sure I want it. And uh, and then we go over to to Roulette Records to see Morris Levy, and they're riding high at that time with Tommy James and the Shandells. Uh, and the lawyer, Mort Farber, says to me, "Look," he says, "Here's what you're going to do." He says Morris is going to offer you three percent for the single and says if it's a hit he'll make an album but we don't have another deal so you tell him okay i don't remember the numbers like five grand but tell him you got he's got to give you five thousand for the record but you want five points not three points so we get in the meeting me and art and morris and he listens to the record and he says, let me bring my promotion guy in. He brings, he brings this guy, Red Schwartz, this famous promotion guy who had just broken Tommy James. And Red Schwartz says, I like this record. I like this record. So, so Morris says, okay, kid, I'll tell you what. And he's got these big cigars and he's chomping on the cigars. He says, I'll tell you, kid, I'm, I'm going I'm to take the record. I'm going to give you $5,000 and three points. Just like, just like Mark Farber said. He says, well, Mr. Levy, you know, we have other interests. Um, I'm okay with the $5,000, but could we please have 5%? And he whirls around on the chair and he looks at me and he says, I'll give you 5%, but I'm going to pay you three. (laughs) That was my first record deal. (laughs) Whatever happened with the record? The record came out and stiffed.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, you're this incredible entrepreneur. Where did you learn how to do that?
2: I don't know. Just in your, you know, it's in your blood.
3: Okay, wait. Well, I didn't want to have a real job. Okay, but you're in high school. You working in high school? Other than booking bands, did you ever have a paper route? Did you ever sell anything?
2: I uh, had a paper route when I was, you know, a young kid. We had a, we had these classes called Junior Achievement. I remember we had to, so we had to make, you know, we made these stupid lights that you put in your car that you plug in the battery if your car broke down. Um, you learn stuff like that. Um, my father owned a pharmacy, so in the you know in the summers I would work there right? Work in the pharmacy, work the cash register, you know, do stuff like that. Um, kind of had a little business mowing lawns and, and shoveling snow, but I hired people to do that. I would book the lawns. But. Okay.
3: That's where it starts. Does it start there or anything before yeah, that?
2: Yeah. Kind of a combination of all of it.
3: Okay. So now you're in Illinois, you drop out of college. Are you booking bands that are named talent or just all the local talent in the
2: area? Yeah. Um, no, we were booking regional bands that were important, okay. Um, but by this time, the the agents around the country, you know, knew we controlled the college markets, especially. So we we were booking some we were booking some national talent. You know, the the, the relationship with WLS certainly didn't hurt me. Like when like Three Dog Night came in you know and, and and basically they wanted to break in the area and in those days you could put a record on in Peoria Illinois or Rockford Illinois and if it showed up it was a hit that's how you got Chicago to play it i mean it was legit in those days of how it worked so you know so art roberts the program director at WLS would would tell like whoever it was at ABC Dunhill uh hey you know if you really want to break this record there's an agent here that can get you dates if you're going to put the record on the radio in Peoria and Rockford and all that You should go play there because that's how you really get a simple thing. You know, the country in those days, you could go out and hard work. That's how Aereo Speedwagon was built. You know, work, you know, you work every little nook and cranny. So, you know, I would get a call and they'd say three dog night, take them for three weeks and book them, you know, and they'd pay me an agency commission and I'd book them all over the three state area, little towns and the record would go on. And that's how you, that's how you built a base in those days, um, and you know, I always thought that I had a big edge coming from Illinois and having seen how the process worked. And you know, and I actually, you know, we actually broke REO Speedwagon off that process. And you know, and you got guys on the coast that had you know grown up in New York and L.A. You know, they just think you walk in, get a record deal, put it on the radio, and it happens. But these bands that had touring basis, you know, it, be, it, it was become bigger and quicker.
3: How many years were you in Illinois before you left for L.A. and once you got to college?
2: Uh I moved to LA when I was uh 22.
3: So it wasn't very long. No. Okay. And you're in there how do you develop your relationship with Ario
2: Speedwagon and Dan Folger? Uh Ario Speedwagon um were a local band that played in our clubs and that I so we, I was their agent you know, and then there was no difference between agent and manager in those days. You know, and that, so we made some tapes and I, you know, we, I went to New York, got him a record deal um, with Ronald Exenberg at uh, Epic Records. Um, and, you know, so that's how that kind of started. Uh, but I actually moved to California because I had Ario and Fogelberg and I felt that I had to go to New York or LA to break them. I how'd you get Fo- how'd you get Fogelberg? Of, uh, Fogelberg was the local folk singer. He played at a place called the Red Herring, which was a coffee shop on the other side of town in Urbana. Um, and, you know, and the rock guys didn't really hang out with the folk guys. And I was the rock guy. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine took me to see Fogelberg who was friend, who kind of knew Fogelberg and thought he was great. And then uh, he came to my office the next day. He'd made a tape because his father was a, um, high school music teacher in Peoria, Illinois, and had a friend in Pekin, Illinois, where he'd been in the studio, made some tapes, that they and they were playing his his tapes on the local uh, college radio station. So Dan was like a year younger than me. So he came to my office, came on his bicycle, came in and played me these tapes, and then, of course, his bicycle got stolen <laughs> while he was in my office playing me the tapes. But, but the first person to take me to see Dan uh, was a guy that I had met who, who just came up to me and said uh, hey you got to go hear this guy he's incredible I have nothing to do with him I don't know him but he's a great great singer you got to go hear him um, and the and the, the the guy was down at the University of Illinois visiting his girlfriend um, the guy was John Belushi. it took me to see Dan Fogelberg
3: <laughs> I hadn't heard that story before okay yep. so now you're in, you want to go to LA and then you ultimately write letters to everybody
2: by the way it's it's, it's just strikes me you know so I meet my, my thing My I really get started when you start thinking about it you know Belushi Fogelberg and you know what are they now they're both dead right I mean it's gone it's crazy both prematurely dead
3: well you know it's weird when I remember watching the George Carlin special before he died and he had his address because oh ripping this guy out he's dead and you like, oh, that's in the future now that's us Yep. it's very weird and you start wondering how much time you actually have left which begs a question anything you have to do before you die
2: <laughs> uh, what who was the one uh, who was it said to me I don't intend to retire and I don't intend to die I'll just go with that well it didn't work for Sumner Redstone. So,
3: but irrelevant when that happens 30 years from now or 30 minutes from now, God forbid, any place you haven't been, anything you haven't done.
2: You know, I know, you know, I feel very fortunate and blessed to what I've done. I'm not, I, I don't have a bucket list left. I mean, it's like, uh, just do more of the same. Okay. So you want to move to LA and you told me you wrote these letters. Uh, well, I sent Fogelberg's tape to Geffen because there'd been an article in Rolling Stone that said, uh, um that he was starting asylum records um and and he you know and i th- sent it to him i don't know, and then i then i called him he picked up the phone um i i knew him a little bit because when he was an agent at it um he was booking the association i think and i'd book something or we had a conversation about booking something um uh, and he uh, and he said that he had listened to the tape and he really liked it and that i should come see him uh so Ario already had a record deal with epic and my friend terry bassett at concerts west had put them on a grand funk railroad tour mm-hmm. so they were out touring everywhere and we we had our start Um but i uh so i came out to see gaffin and he said and he told me um, that jackson brown really liked uh, the fogelberg tapes but that he was backed up on male singer-songwriters because he had Jackson, he had Ned Doheny, he had David Blue, you know, all these, all these, and he said, if I could wait a year, he would sign Dan. Now, us being what we were, kids being kids, um, uh we didn't wait a year, but I took a I took a job working for Jerry Heller at a place called the Heller Fischel Agency. Wait, wait,
3: wait! You told me that you tried to get a job with a million other people that way, and he was the only one who offered you a job.
2: No, no, no that wasn't true. That, I, don't, I don't know what I told you then, but um, but do you recall? But I, uh, um, I had to decide if I was going to go to New York or L.A. I decided I was going to leave Champagne, and I'd actually Bob Nut had you know, right? freak, you know, kind of just went nuts on drugs and alcohol and kind of disappeared and i and the guy i kind of gave the agency to the guys that worked for me uh and said i don't want to do this anymore and i'd saved a bunch of money anyway so um but the the biggest agent in the business was frank barcelona at premier talent right in new york you know and a a gentleman who was a you know who was a pioneer of you know he divided the country up and decided who got what he had all the big english bands right and Mm -hmm. uh and um so uh and i and i had books and stuff for frank and stuff and my friend bill elson from chicago had gone to work there um and bill had uh and and, and so i'd been in to see frank and he's so he kind of said uh i'm gonna come work here come move to new york and work here so he said i'm gonna be in chicago i'm gonna be at aaron russo's kinetic playground to see led zeppelin why don't you come up to chicago and meet with me I'll meet you in front of the Kinetic Playground at eight o'clock, whatever it was. And, 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 and so I go up there and the Kinetic Playground earlier in the day had burned to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and I took that as a message, don't move to New York, okay? So, and I had been offered this other job. Jerry Heller was a very, uh, it was a new startup agency, uh, represented Jose Feliciano, the Guess Who, Lee Michaels, Nils Lofgren, and Grin, um, had a bunch of stuff a bunch of Geffen stuff Jojo Gunn on Asylum and a bunch of stuff um, and Jerry and Don owned this agency so it was the two of them and me uh, and they were fun times until Jerry did too much blow and kind of got in a fight with Geffen and was fighting with everybody and then I moved to Associated Booking Company
0: this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback
1: it's got standard third row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Tell the story of we're going to do the Lee Michaels date.
2: So Jerry Heller says to me, uh, go up, stay with Lee. Um, make sure he goes to this gig. I think it was, I don't know. It wasn't Sacramento. might've been Fresno or something. What, I think it was Sacramento.
3: Sa- you told me Sacramento the last time. But yeah, because okay.
2: it was drivable from San Francisco. Right. Right. And he had some you know, like Ferrari or something. So I get to his house. This guy had live mountain lions and tigers <laughs> in his backyard as pets. Okay. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so I survived that. And, and he had this wonderful girlfriend uh, that I think had, I don't know whether she was with Van Morrison before or after him, but I remember her name was Janet Planet. Right. B- okay. And so Lee and I would jump in the car. He drives like a hundred miles an hour <laughs> to the gig. Okay. Uh, and he he had this two-piece band, him and a drummer named Frosty. And he had this, massive hit record and he was huge in california so you know and and he played like 20 minutes and comes over the side stage and says come on kid we're leaving and i went you can't leave you just played 15 20 minutes he says do you have the money i said yeah he says we got paid i said yeah he says we're out of here okay (laughs) and dragged me to the car and we drove back to san francisco and you all told me how to give the money back. Of course, we had to give the money back because they nearly <laughs> rioted. And then Jerry Heller said to me, well, what do you, I send you up there. How do you fuck this up? How did you let the guy leave?" Right. But anyway, there's. I got a million of those stories. Okay, so
3: your go-to Associated Booking. What is that?
2: Uh, associated Booking was a bigger agency, um, you know, and if it, it, you know, it was founded basically by Joe Glazer. Um, the guy running it was Oscar Cohen, but you know, it was built on the back of uh, uh, you know, uh, Glazer represented um, people like uh, Louis Armstrong and you know all the big bands and 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 that stuff. And then and, and it was it was a solid place. You know, Tom Ross, who founded the CAA Personal Appearance Department, was there. Johnny Podell, who later kind of founded ATI, but but we had um, Alice Cooper, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Um, uh the doors uh it, it was you know it was a real real place
3: okay then you end up booking the roxy
2: yeah uh i'm an associate of booking and then david and elliot convinced me to leave take fogelberg and ario with me who i was managing while i was still an agent uh, and come uh when when david goes to asylum i go to geffen roberts to um to kind of fill the void uh, and, and every, and they were all pissed off at Doug Weston for the shitty deals he was giving artists. So I guess I kind of, I guess, you know, I would have to say thank you to Elliot and David and Lou Adler, who said, uh, if you see something really wrong, where an artist is getting screwed, uh, you know, start something, start a competitor, right? So they went and built the Roxy because D- D- Doug Weston's deals for artists were unfair, i mean you'd have to give them big options you know elton john bett Midler, everybody came in there i mean you'd have to play there three four five weeks to get your initial booking you'd get they'd have four options at like stupid low money um but yeah so i ended up book, so i ended up booking the uh the opening of the roxy and uh, in those days cheech and chong were huge and that was lose act of course um and i'm trying to remember who we booked the opening week um, doesn't come to me now, but I know Cheech and Chong had been in there and, and, and a bunch of bands. And, and so Lou had said to me, you know, we need something, you need something black too. So I'd book the temptations, uh, but they could only play, they'd only, we're only open to play like Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. And he said, look, you know, my ex just came in here and played five days um so i got in this big fight with Lou because he said you can't book the temptations unless play they play the whole week and i said i'll tell you what asshole you book the fucking club <laughs> so i you know so i booked the opening and quit um but shit happens but the those were those were incredible days in the strip in la
3: okay so you're working at geffen roberts what are you doing there what's going on there
2: uh i was pre- i prom- predominantly doing what i knew best which was touring you know so i was i was booking the tours with, you know, there were agents, but I was putting together and supervising the book. And mentors. how do you end
3: up managing the Eagles?
2: Um, so we were managing in those days, uh, Dylan, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, Joni, America, Eagles. So the Eagles in America were the kids. Poco, I think, too. Jackson. Uh, and the Eagles in America were kind of the kids. And and I bring Joe Walsh and REO and Fogelberg with me, too.
3: How do you get involved with Joe Walsh? Because he's with the Belkins in Ohio. How does that start?
2: Uh, um, Belkin and I promoted, um, Mike was a friend of mine. We promoted a series of concerts in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And so I was around Joe a lot with Mike. And Joe, the James Gang had broken up. Joe had made an unsuccessful solo album. Mike and Joe had parted company. Um, and um, Joe and I had stayed in touch because I'd promoted a bunch of dates on him. So he looks me up in LA. He found me in LA.
3: Okay. So you're back to the story with the Eagles.
2: Uh, Yeah. So um, it's no secret that uh, um, um, the Eagles and Geffen had their differences. Um, So at, at some point um, big blow up occurs uh, and the Eagles say, we're leaving. Um, Why don't you come? Why don't you take Vogelberg and Ari, Why don't you come start your own company and, and be our manager? Right. And uh I'd had a failed negotiation with David and Elliot to become a partner in the firm. Um the deal, and by the way, the the deal just changed, shall we say. It wasn't what they said it was going to be after a year. That never uh,
3: happens in rock and roll.
2: No. Uh and 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 uh uh and they uh and and by the way, they were they were great mentors and the deal and, and by the way, even the change deal was okay. But my heart, Glenn and Glenn and Donna become my closest friends and Fogelberg and Joe, you know, and I just want to be with my guys. So so I go back to David and Elliot and say, you know, the Eagles are leaving and they want, you know, and you know, the deal didn't happen that you said was gonna happen. Um, I think I'm gonna go with them. And they go, Okay, you can have your deal. <laughs> we don't give a we don't give a fuck if they leave, but we care if you leave right so i said i'm gonna stay and i go back to the eagles and say guess what we're gonna stay but things will be different because now i'm a partner and i can do then they said nah we're not staying pick that it's them or us and so <laughs> i went so i you know i i went with them because they were you know it was it was they were you know they were we were real you know obviously we were really tight so
3: what was the status where were they in their album cycles then um
2: when we left was probably after Desperado, but before On the Borders released. Okay, so
3: they had the peak on the first album, but they were relatively cold at the time.
2: Yes, unfortunately. Okay,
3: so the first big success you have at your new management Joe, company, Joe,
2: Wa- Joe Walsh, was bigger than the Eagles at that point because he has the smoker you drink, player right. you get, Rocky Mountain Way, right.
3: And so, is the next big success the Eagles, or is there something else?
2: Well, R- REO was a huge touring band. Um, Joe was – and, you know, and, and yeah, and then uh, Dan broke after the Eagles. But, um, you know, and, and then it's kind of a blur. You know, uh, Jimmy Buffett comes aboard, Boss Gags, Steely Dan, Stevie Nicks.
3: Okay. So,
2: what was your special sauce? Um. You know, I think it's just that that standard that standard thing. You know, you take every phone call, you return every phone call, you treat people with respect. Um, if uh, you know, uh, you can't be afraid to get in a fight. You show me a manager that just says yes and never gets in a fight; he's doing a shitty job, okay? Because you know, saying saying yes is easy, saying no is hard. You know, it can get you in some scrapes. Um, and and you know, the whole thing about you know, you got to understand, you know the artist is the the artist is the drawing card and the artist is the reason you're there and you and you got to like these people and you got to like and you got to love music or you shouldn't do it okay
3: people who don't actually know you and go by reputation they're not aware of the fact that you're so charming and friendly and you get along is that just your personality or is that a strategy
2: also i don't think it's a strategy well, listen, Hanley has this this line he uses all the time, when it's necessary. I need you to go seventies on him, okay? <laughs> and 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 we, I mean, come on. When you're kids and you're, you know, you're, you know, Glenn Fry was James Dean, man. I mean, you know, it was like we were running hard and fast. You know, I was never. The, you know consuming what they were consuming but i certainly had the punk attitude you know um and you know you're in hollywood and it's an actor job and you know if you're in, in in the 70s in hollywood you know you you know you had you had rough characters out there whether it was you know you'd sit in front of the you'd sit in the troubadour at night and listen to albert grossman and david geffen scream at each other right um so it was you, you just you, you had to kind of play to the, to the uh, the typecast that you were given you know we're all we're in hollywood so you know all that all that kind of 70s behavior was it was one it was an act two it was fun um and three it worked (laughs) (laughs) now you notoriously got into battles where you didn't speak to people for a while and
3: then you made up what was happening there?
2: Well, when you put somebody in jail they get out eventually, don't they? <laughs> I mean I kind of, it was I looked at it more like a hockey game you have a fight the guy goes in the penalty box and then he gets out of the penalty box
3: yeah, but you also sent like uh, Chuck Morris an actual puck and told him he was out of the penalty box possible <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. Were you aware before it's released how big? Col- but here's how good your memory is and my memory is. Did, did you ever know why Chuck Morris went in the penalty box?
3: He did well, tell me, but I, you're going to remind me. I can't whip it out so, right here. So
2: when I was at MCA Records, he was man is I sold you know and and, and we still had the management business right and you know and he was my promoter in Colorado and other places and close close friend and he was managing the Dirt Band and um, the Dirt Band were off of Warner. And he made a deal with me for the dirt man to come record for me. And it was, you know, and we were launching really getting big in Nashville. Um, and then he decided not to close the deal. So I put him in the penalty box for a while.
3: Fair. Right. They, they went to United Artists. It really fucked him up just when he tells the story. But going back, you're, you know, it takes a while to make Hotel California. Are you aware of the phenomenon it's going to be before it comes out?
2: Uh, we knew it was magical. Yeah, I, I mean, look, you you never you never can predict that level of success, but um, you know, you you, you just um, you know, I had the 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 good fortune to be sitting there as those songs were re- were written, you know, whether it was in the rented houses that we rented or sometimes in my house, um, and I was there when they the tracks were laid, and I was there when the vocals were laid, you know, and you just. You know, Glenn and Donna had just hit the hit their stride, you know, and I don't know why, you know, these guys can't, it doesn't last 30 or 40 or 50 years, the ability to write and and record and stay, you know, ahead of it. Um, but they you know, but they, that, those were, you know, but I, but look, I would contend even all the way back, but, you know, long run Hotel California on the border were, you know, and, and I, and I thought Long Road Out of Eden were just amazing pieces of work.
3: Certainly, so ultimately you have this huge success and suddenly you're managing everybody, Steely, Dan, Boz Skaggs, Buffett. are these people just calling you up, say, you know, give me some of the magic? How do you end up managing all those people?
2: Uh, networking, you know, it, it, there's no two situations that are same. Um, Jimmy Buffett, um, I'm in the um, you know we had houses in Aspen and I was in the I was in the Jerome Bar in Aspen. Uh, called the office and got a message that some opening act had canceled and we were leaving the next day to start a date in carolina and i looked over and i knew jimmy because we were both at aspen he's sitting literally sitting at the bar with hunter thompson at the jerome bar hotel and i'm going jimmy's wife's from carolina he's jimmy's big in carolina we're starting in the carolina so i went over and tapped him on the shoulder and said Hey, he want to he want to come open for the Eagles on the tour, and he says, "Yeah, I ain't doing nothing." Of course, I said, "All right, grab your guitar and meet me at the airport. I'll book the flights tomorrow morning." We flew together the date, and that's and he and and uh, he was uh, he was managed by a guy in Nashville at the time and had a record deal and was starting out, and it was kind of just getting started for him, but things things got. Got waylaid, and and one day after he opens for the Eagles at Madison Square Garden, his wife Jane Buffett hops in my limo, and says, uh, you're going to manage my husband. You're going to go buy him out of this other contract, and and manage Jimmy." So that's how that kind of happens. Um, I believe somebody at Columbia Records set me up with Boz. Um, you know my my girl Stevie um was just. You know, Fleetwood Mac was a mess. And she knew she wanted to make uh solo records. Um and you know, and and we'd done dates together, Eagles and Fleetwood Mac. So you mostly meet these people out on the road, you know? And how do you get involved with Howard Kaufman? Howard Kaufman was um he and Larry Fitzgerald were running Jimmy Garcio's management business. And they were managing Chicago and the Beach Boys and Maybe even Billy Joel. I don't know. I don't remember. But Howard was the kind of CFO guy, and Larry was kind of the general manager. You know, and and Garcia was the producer. Um, and I, you know, we and I we were recording up at Caribou, the Eagles and stuff. I met Howard and Larry. Um, one thing led to another, and Howard ended up. And you know, and Jimmy wasn't paying those guys what they were worth. And then Howard became a partner in the company, and rest is kind of history.
3: What were Howard's roles as opposed to your roles?
2: Well, he kind of picked up the. Uh, uh, you know, I was the I was the talent artist relations guy. Um, I would help the making of the records and the and you know kind of route the tours and stuff. But Howard would all the you know all the economics. He was a very gifted business manager. So deals.
3: Okay, how do you end up at MCA?
2: How do I end up at MCA? uh well the eagles broke up fleetwood mac broke up um steely dam broke up um howard we used to we used to have this act we called me the pencil and him the eraser <laughs> and uh and howard said you know no matter how much money we've made you know you know without all this income from these other people we have to go sign other people and all i know is i wake up one day and and uh, we'd sign sticks and the go-go's after having the Eagles, Steely Dan, and Fleetwood Mac. Um, and uh, I somehow fell into um, this movie, FM, that I'd made at, at Universal, where I took my name off because they I had the right to take my name off if I didn't like the movie, which they thought was hilarious that I negotiated that right. So I did the soundtrack, which was very successful, and I took my name off the movie because I didn't like the movie. Which they thought was fucking ridiculous. So I get a call one day from the, the and then um, they had a guy running MCA Records named Gene Frolic, and in those days I think records were seven ninety eight, maybe eight ninety eight. But Froelich, I don't think
3: they were that expensive yet. But okay, I think they were still six ninety eight.
2: Whatever. Frolic decided that Gaucho by Steely Dan, which was the last album they owed MCA. Uh, should be 9.98 or it was a dollar or two dollars more whatever right dollar two dollars more um so fagan and becker and i i said listen i've got a perfect way to let the public know that that we are not off you know that we're unhappy that they're charging this money so I heard Mickey Rudin, who was, this, who was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and this high-powered, you know, and Steve Ross at Warner's lawyer, and I had him sue MCA on the grounds that um, we wanted out of our contract because um, they're not a proper record label because no record label is stupid enough to charge nine ninety-eight for a record. And actually, then they, of course, had to file for uh, summary judgment to get the case dropped, and we actually took Scheinberg's deposition. <laughs> and stuff. It was fucking hilarious. And Scheinberg thought that this was the greatest stunt ever. And of course, we lost and the album came out at 998 and it did fine. But anyway, I get this call from them one day. And I was, I don't know, must have been, I can tell you exactly, I was 35. And they said, um, why don't you come be on our board and run the record company? And, you know, I wasn't having any fun right then. And I and I turned it down a couple of times and they kept coming back to me. Um and I remember Shelley and I were at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. They used to have this big tennis tournament down there. Um and we went down with our friend John McEnroe. Um and he was so and and at the time I was playing a lot of tennis and stuff and and so he was he was down there we were hanging out with John McEnroe and and Bjorn Borg and you know they were doing naughty things and it was just just really fun. And I remember Shelly coming and get me. She says, Stevie Nicks is on the phone. She's crying, blah, 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 blah. So I get, I pick up the phone and Stevie says to me, um, she was signing her solo deal to, um, uh, Danny Goldberg and, uh, and, um, Paul's Paul label. Fishkin. Paul Modern Fishkin's records. label, Modern Records. And she says, they say you're being so mean to them and you're charging them too much money and you're going to, they can't afford to pay for me what you want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it, you know, and, and and I just kind of threw up my hands. I said, Shell, you know what? That's a signal. Maybe, I'm, maybe I should just go do this, right? So I, you know, and then one thing led to another, so I agreed to do it. I kind of felt like, I'd done interviews where I called them the Music Cemetery of America, which Lou Wasserman and Sid Scheinberg thought was hilarious. And I'd called them that joke of that joke of a record company in the valley nobody wants to sign with. And I, I kind of figured there was nowhere to go but up. Yeah, the label was essentially moribund. They had this act. I on- took I, I I took all the album covers of the current artists, and there's this there was this big long hall down at the, in the quarter and, in the offices. I put them all up on the on the wall, and I and I then I made I make all made all the new employees walk. I said, "This is the walk of shame." This is <laughs> it. you know, so we would, and then one by one, we dropped every act on the roster.
3: Now suddenly, you're on the other side. You're on the buying as opposed to the selling. Yeah. Okay, and there was nothing there, and it was the worst label in the business. How'd you build it?
2: Uh, well, I I made some mistakes. Uh, I bought a Joan Jett record. That she was free after her big record on Casablanca. Uh, I bought a B. I bought a Barry Gibbs solo record that's stiffed. I bought a Joan Jett record that's stiffed. I bought a, a Brian Wilson solo record that's stiffed. But I love. But I loved. Bron- I, but I loved all. Of the, I loved two of the three. Um, but I also started a, a a label within a label. You know, in, in the black music department, and Clarence Avon helped me hire. Uh, Gerald Busby and Lil Silas, both of whom are no longer with us. Um, and we built a label within a label. In those days, you'd have like kind of a white head of the of your music division, and it would report in, you know, there'd be a senior VP of black music that was a white guy, right? And I made Gerald president of black music. And, you know, and I, and I let I just let those guys go, you know, I helped them sign, you know, they, when they walked Babyface in LA and I convinced them to sign when they walked Teddy Riley and I convinced them to sign. Um, we stole a new, we stole a new edition out from under Clive. He had a contract issued and we got there at the last minute and overpaid and got him. And then I did the same thing in Nashville with Jimmy Bowen and, uh, and uh, uh, other people where we started a, a, a country division um you know which uh became an you know so basically the the country and the black music divisions made us made our day and then we bought motown so what'd you learn running a label as opposed to being a manager um you know i didn't like ever having to be on the other side of of the talent table which is kind of why i went back there Okay,
3: then it becomes an amazing operation. You leave, you form Giant. You have, you know, you keep selling your company, and you were not as big then as you were previously and as you are now. What what was going through your mind in those days
2: in the nineties? Um, well, the 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 Giant thing started out okay, um, but it never exploded. You know, I kind of did the same stuff I'd done there. You know, I started a country division, started a black music division, the whole thing. But, it, you know, it's hard to build from scratch um, in those days. Um, and so, when the, so, we put the Eagles back together and signed Journey. So, I said, I'm out of here. So, I sold, you know, so Roger Ames was at Warner's at the time. So, I sold the label. Um, and by the way, still, even with a, I don't want to call it unsuccessful, but a, not major asset still got paid more money than i would have had you know salary for work you know the salary i would have made staying at universal um so it still worked out okay and then i then you know then i went back in the you know that's when i go back in the management business and then shortly after that you know kind of promoting a little bit of everything i i have no attention span and and, you know and i know enough to know that you can do more for your artist if you have more clout than just managing artists and you can and and you really need uh, the platform of more than just a management business. You know guys like Corn Capshaw have learned that really well. So what did you then get with you
3: were merging part of frontline with different companies what were what was the strategy and all that?
2: No that was the you know that the frontline roll up with the strategy was to fight the consolidation of what was Clear Channel and 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 those guys at that point okay you know and then one and then you know and then uh then it just keeps growing you know we and then uh the, um and then the ticket master opportunity came around i had one of two choices i'd gotten the seed you know when i got ready to merge with a bunch of these other managers we were we were all i had this theory we'd all keep half our commissions and then the other half commissions we'd put in the pot so it was kind of we'd all have incentive to take care of our own acts but also to look out for our partners and then when it came time to close you know we had there like four of us everybody was well where's our check right nobody wanted to put the half in the pot they wanted me to buy that half so um i knew this guy named scott sperling who had been at who was at at thomas lee which is now th lee in boston i knew him because he was the student buyer and went to went to school with my brother at purdue university and Just he calls me up one day and says, hey, I'm going to buy Warner Music uh, and I'm going to put this guy Jeff Quatnitz in charge to run it. Can you consult us and help us get this deal done? And I went, Scott, first of all, you're not buying Warner Music. They're going to use you as a stalking horse and sell a TMI. Okay. Two, you're not putting Jeff Quatnitz in charge of anything. Okay. And so one thing led to another. um, And of course they did buy Warner Music uh, and he came back to me and said, "How about you know?" And I and, I, and I and we were friends. And I told him my you know how all these you know I wanted to merge all these management businesses. He said, "Merge all the management businesses, and then we'll merge it with Warner Music, right?" And then when they when everybody said, "Oh, we need money," Scott came back to me and said, "Well, I'll put up the money, right?" And so Scott and I, you know, THL and I went in business to buy all these managers together, and then. He comes and then he has Edgar Bronfman running Warner, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, when the time and then he comes and says, "We want to merge you, change Warner Music into a different model. We're doing terrible, right?" Uh, and we we have the deal done. And I think it was a guy that owned ten percent. Providence owned ten percent of Warner at the time. This guy Jonathan Nelson, who is a really nice guy, but Jonathan said it wasn't fair for T H Lee to make a profit when they sold frontline management and merged it with warner so he wanted scott to disgorge his profit to the partners and scott said i'm not going to do that and while that was going on barry diller showed up and said um i'll you know merge with ticketmaster i'll pay you more and scott said take their check (laughs) and 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 we and we basically thought in those days you know the record business was in the toilet and we kind of felt all of us felt, all our managers that we sat down, we all felt that um, controlling Ticketmaster and the, w- putting us in the live side of the business was a better idea than merging with a record label. But you a little bit get in the den of the wolf there with Barry Diller. Um, yeah, Barry's a strong personality, a brilliant guy. He's made billions and billions and billions. But um, I was a... Um, you know, my job, because he, you know, he had screwed Ticketmaster up so bad, um, their deal was expiring with both AEG and Live Nation. So, it was clear, you know, right after I got there that we had to do a deal with one of them. So, my, my the, you know, my deal of choice was AEG because my friend Tim was there. Um, so, the, 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 the truth is that we had a handshake um, to… Um, do a a new long-term deal with AEG. AEG, I think, was getting like a 15% stake in Ticketmaster in return for a long-term ticketing deal. Uh, And then uh, Phil Anschutz and Barry uh, um, couldn't get along, and the deal fell apart. So then I went and made the Live Nation deal. And lived happily ever after. Yeah. So what kind of plane do you have now? Um, What kind of plane? I don't have any plane. My wife has a plane what kind of what Shelley? what kind of plane does she have she has she has a she has a humble airplane we fly private
3: okay it ain't that humble because you upgraded so you upgraded from something not so humble to something little less humble so you don't want to mention the model the maker
2: nah it's not important
3: okay many people will say economically it doesn't pay to have your own plane just use a uh, netjet what's the thinking there
2: um. Look, uh, and, I, and a lot of clients, clients have planes and stuff too. Um, first of all, I think the, the the plane is a is a great luxury, but it's also, you know, I could I used to pre pandemic i'm doing it again you save up six seven stops and you go out and you, you, you know you can go out and get done in three days what would take you 10 days if you fly in commercial city to city but that that notwithstanding the rule of thumb is if you're flying 250 hours a year or more as an entertainer or an executive uh in and you, in in, in, a, in a fractional jet you should you're better off owning your own plane
3: okay so what's your take on youtube
2: now um you know, they've just you know, they still pay so little per per stream or per whatever you want to say, user or whatever. Um I I think they're shocked that they're now getting enough so many subscribers that are signing up for the pay service. Um but it's still you know, it's it's you know, they they're saying they paid four billion or whatever, you know. I've got analysis being done. It's not as rosy as it looks, but it's not as bad as it was. So, you know, they get a, they get a, a C- for me instead of an F these days. Um, but it's getting better. It is getting better. What, what will make it get better? What would you like to see happen that you see is going to happen? Well, I, I contend with a company like YouTube where they say YouTube wasn't making any money when the worth of your company goes from a hundred million to a trillion five or whatever it goes to that you made money, there's different, you know, there's two ways to make money cash and, and the valuation of, you know, of, of your business, their valuation of their business based on YouTube was, went way up, you know, and, and, you know, they, and they got, uh, they got into bed with the labels where, you know, the labels are getting paid a bunch of money that isn't being shared with artists and producers. So, you know, Oh, YouTube is promotional. Okay, so you don't have to pay a royalty on it, you know. And then they pay the labels all this flat money, and then, you know, it, it's a it look it's a big fight, you know the 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 it's uh, we're never going to get a fair division between you know creative and whether it's YouTube or you know or uh, one of the labels or or somebody, but we can get closer to the middle.
3: And of the varying streaming companies left, really three big ones, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, do those maintain their, you know, independence? Is there a merger there? How do you see that? No, space? no, there's no
2: there's no merger there. you know, first of all, the regulators wouldn't allow it. There's no fit there. And they have different business plans. Amazon, you know, is you know, Amazon Prime is about getting loyalty from customers to their other business and they use music and movies and and streaming for all of that. You know, at you know Apple, yes it's a services company but it's also um you know hardware but you know Apple's the only company that you know doesn't give anything you know they don't do any free. Okay. <laughs> right. And and Spotify I think needs to do free for their business model but you know, you know you need a healthy Spotify um because you know they're in one line of business. Amazon and Apple have other businesses, um, so I think there's a nice balance now between the the three. And from where you sit, you know, there's all this scuttlebutt about streaming
3: payments. I'm talking about paid services. What's your viewpoint on that?
2: Um, the services are paying a fair amount to for IP. So, but by the way, do I don't try- agree. I don't agree with how it's divided. Okay. Meaning, right? You know, you know, it's being used, you know, for a kid using it as a radio station and punching the button 35 times while I'm at work. Right. And, you know, that record that he's punching 35 times, getting paid 35 times, I've paid the same amount of money I'll work and then I come home at night and listen to four tracks, you know, my, you know, but my four tracks, you know, m- whoever those were, don't get paid what the, you know, what the one rec, one new, you know, record that came out that the kid's, hit played 35 times during the day so you know i think it should be by the user not not by the you know not by the okay
3: so now you're in the publishing business most people believe the streaming pie the publishing gets uh too low a percentage do you agree with that do you think you know there's some government regulation spotify fought them what's the future of uh publishing payments um,
2: the general consensus amongst the artist groups is that the labels got too big a pie in the streaming versus the publishers. Now, Universal, Sony, and Warner own huge publishing companies. So, they're getting this, you know. But Coming and you going. Know, yeah. You know, so, but, 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 you know, so the argument that you would hear from publishers and writers is that uh yeah but you know they have a lot of administration deals and stuff so when a dollar goes to the record company the label keeps a lot more of it than when a dollar goes to their publishing company i don't think they sat down and figured that out traditionally labels in our business took the artist development process and the marketing costs and publishers you know got less per record because they took less risk they paid writer advances but they didn't have marketing costs they didn't have manufacturing costs you know, now, of course, nobody has manufacturing costs. But there's just traditions in there. I think that's why publishers got less than they, than they, you know, the, 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 than they should have gotten. Yeah. It, is there an imbalance? Yeah. Is it going to get fixed? I doubt it.
3: Okay. Now, the big action in the last couple of years is third-party money. Scooter Braun took a huge check. He went through changes. Ultimately, sold out to the Koreans. We have Merck Mercuriatus. We have Primary Wave. Is this all a good thing or a not good thing?
2: Um, look, look. The, uh, you know, look. The, the great thing about uh, um, capitalism in in general um, is, you know, everybody's got a chance to go invent and do things differently. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I I don't know Scooter's deals, but I I know that. Uh, um, I do know some of the deals he made when he was acquiring management businesses and stuff and the way in which they were done. And, you know, those managers end up losing clients and there wasn't full disclosure and stuff like that. So, and, I, and, and you know, and I, I, you know I, I just think that um, they're, they're certainly within their rights to, to do what they want. Um, Merck's model, you know, I, I love the idea that Merck's out there bringing attention to um, the value of IP because that helps artists. And I don't, you know, if I don't want to, if I don't want to match or write that big a check, I, you know, I just say I can't do it. But I'm never going to bitch when an artist gets more money. That's, that's why we exist.
3: Speaking of the artists, what about the seven year rule?
2: The seven year rules are cake. Okay. When I was at Universal in the eighties and I was one of the guys that helped, you know, that not help, but I, I certainly supported that we needed the exclusion from the seven year rule because, you know, sometimes a band wouldn't happen till their fifth year, right? You'd get two albums in five years, you'd lose money. And then so it was necessary. But these days, you know, how you know, how long did it really take Billy Eilish or Olivia Rodrigo or one of those to happen? So this, you know, it's just a changing marketplace, you know, and, and the seven year rule is is antiquated. So, I mean, I mean you, know, the, you know, the exception, you know, giving a record, the only people in the state of California that get an exception to the seven-year labor law are, are the only people that are penalized are recording artists. So, but there's, there's a compromise to be had. Uh, and, you know, the bill will come back up in January, uh, and there'll be a big fight. And um, hopefully, uh, reasonable people will, will, will work it out. You know, but, you know, the labels, you know, look, so the seven-year thing is antiquated, but so is the... Uh, um, you know, the the clause, the re-recording clause. You know, Taylor Swift's being really successful right now, right? Re-recording all her stuff, you know. Labels have far more to worry about with that than they do the seven-year statute.
3: Okay, what is the future of the labels? Because now many people, you know, they can make the record without the label. They can put it on Spotify just like anybody else. Now obviously they have great IP, but going
2: forward, you know, look, they're the banks. Um, now that they're all public entities, thinking quarter to quarter, um, they're you know I see the the deals have tightened, um, and you know it, it's 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 free enterprise, it's capitalism. So now that they're down to three, and that they're public companies, it sort of feels like there'll be flourishing independence coming at some point.
3: And the agency business. Let's say the agencies have changed completely. You know, WME does not make most of their business and not most of their money in Hollywood. Do we even need an agent? Is you know, Uh, we need this many agencies? Look, look.
2: look, Does does yeah? I think we need agents. I believe in the agency system, especially for you know, not everybody. The handful of major attractions don't need agents, but they have areas of their life where their agents get them you know, look after them, you know, Um, but in terms of the personal appearance agency side of the business, um, most acts are are, are needed. And you got a lot of managers these days that aren't as sophisticated that really need the skills of an agent to make their, make their live deals. So who do you learn from? Hmm. Well, I learned the most from Don Henley and Glenn Fry of everybody. A couple of lessons. You know, one of the earliest things, you know, Fry showed up in a t-shirt that said song power and tossed me a t-shirt that said phone power. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you got to have great songs. I learned that from them. It's about songs. It's about lyric. It's about distinctive melody. It all starts there. Okay. But on a general level, like in the Wall Street Journal, they say, who are your mentors? Who's your club? Who's your club today? I had I had the good fortune, you know, to be around David Geffen and Elliot Roberts in the early days. Okay. Um I had Barry Diller in my life. I had Scott Sperling at TH Lee in my life. I had John Malone in my life, right? At at uh at Live Nation. Those are those are there's some and Lou Wasserman and Sid Scheinberg were amazing. Right. So I've you know, I've been around some of the most, you know, famous corporate minds in the business and you pick up stuff and you learn stuff but you know eventually you turn it into your own okay so when you're in a quandary who do you call shelly
3: okay (laughs) and what does she tell you (laughs) work harder (laughs) but how about business insight in terms of decisions who do you call
2: um who are my mentors these days who do i call yeah business insights um you know, I have some really close personal friends, some of whom I'm uh, in business with and not. But um, David Bonderman, TPG, uh, Egon Durbin at uh, Silver Lake, uh, Eddie Q at Apple. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of a lot of great people around. Rapino and I uh, talk regularly. I think he is. Uh, brilliant and strategic and i learned a lot from him i can't tell you how much i learned from the lie wiki brothers from tim and todd uh tim and todd lie wiki. so i got a lot of people around to to bounce stuff off of
3: and you still talk to don henley every day
2: yes and how long a conversation and about what well it can be you know it can be some texting but but you know w- you know we either talk on the phone or, or multiple texts every day
3: and personal or business both Okay, so the music business, what do we know? 60s and 70s drove the culture if you were a musician who was rich as anybody in America. Today, we literally have billionaires, okay? Almost none of them made their money being a performer, etc. In addition, Mm -hmm. once you start in the 60s to 75, it's a new business with evolution, okay? The switching Mm -hmm. of the deals from the Sid Bernstein deals to the Peter Grant deals, etc., where's music's place in the firmament now and what is the future
2: um music's in, a, in a, is still a very important part of culture probably more influential um than it's ever been it may not it may not be throwing off the economics in terms of other people are making more money but it's certainly as important to lifestyle and culture as it as it's ever been so mm. you know for for you know if you want to be I guess if you're thinking how am I going to become a multi-billionaire you got to think of some crazy uh, company to start that you can sell as a to you know as anything related to tech but um, but if you want to influence culture I would still say that a musician influences more than a than an actor or a, you know any of that stuff okay you have a million stories tell
3: us one or two of your favorite stories
2: I'll close with one great one okay um it is and and it's no secret that it has to be joe walsh right who is another one of my closest running mates for many 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 years um which joe walsh story do you want you want a keith moon story or uh, oh i got a good one so we were on the road tour pre-joining the eagles joe walsh marshall tucker leonard skinner um and in those days um, Joe would hallucinate. And so we'd get adjoining rooms and I'd leave the door open. So in the middle of the night when the Martians came to take him, he'd, he'd run in my room yelling, the Martians are coming, the Martians are coming. And I would just say, no, Joe, they're not. Go back to bed, right? So we get it. We're in upstate New York. I think it was like Syracuse or Albany or one of those. And, uh, and we were in one of those round holiday inns. And we check in at the door and they go, we don't have any adjoining rooms. And, you know, and, uh, and that's the first thing the travel agent and the tour manager had because Joe couldn't, couldn't sleep if he wasn't in the adjoining room to me. And they said, but we have rooms next door to each other. There physically isn't two rooms in the hotel that, you know, where the door opens and it connects. I says, Joe, you'll be fine for one night. And he, you know, I said, you'll be fine for one night. Well, what I'll do is I won't double lock my door. I got two keys to my room. And then when the Martians come in the middle of the night, you go out in the hallway, you take one step to the right, you unlock my door, you come in and and, and you get me. And he says, I'm fine. That's great. No problem. Uh, and these were the days. So we, you know, you'd land at an airport. I'd call the office and I'd scribble on the back of a piece of paper, 30 calls or so that I have to call back. So I'm sitting in my hotel room. Joe's in the, in the room next door to me and you're sitting there and you're, you're dialing one after the other and you know, you're entering your credit card and you remember those days when you, entered your credit card make you know, and I had given, Joe had had this horrible chainsaw on the road with him to saw things. Uh, and it was one of those dirty ones that had like, you had to put gasoline in it and shit. So I got him an electric chainsaw and mounted it in a guitar case and stuff. So he's got out his electric chainsaw um, and I hear it start. And I'm going, eh. so he saw, you know, he's sawing up some furniture, no big deal. Uh, And then the wall, I I hear it like into the wall, right? So I just keep making my phone calls and it's getting louder and louder. And then I see the thing come through the door. So he's made an igloo sized cut, all like an opening to an igloo around like semicircle. And then he and then he's, you know, kicking it and pushing it and you know, the plaster's breaking and the shit comes through. And I just keep making my calls. And he crawls through the hole in the wall between the, the two of us and he looks up at me and he says, And I made it just your size. <laughs> <laughs> Bada bing. I just have to ask one more
3: question. You have all the stories that? on the stories on the road. Yeah, the manager of the hotel finds out. What do you do? Just have a huge stack of hundred dollar bills. How do you get out of this? How do you get it? You pay.
2: Road manager, tour manager deals with it.
3: And and as long as you have enough money, it all works.
2: Yeah. Well, you can't do it these days. First of all, people film shit and they put it up. You can't get away with this shit anymore. You go to jail for it. Now somebody would have filmed it. Right. Right. Okay. Thanks, Bob Irving. We
3: we've just you know hit the surface of the planet but this is well, so we can do so it again great. we Absolutely. can do it again so you know we got air where's this air where yeah what or are
2: you do you when both
3: where it's going to be on literally every podcast service we are iHeart product so it'll be on the iHeart platform it'll be on the right. Spotify platform be on the Stitcher platform be on the Apple platform be on the Amazon platform okay, so it's great. on all of the big things i'm sure you know that everyone will be scrambling to hear your words of wisdom oh
2: uh, that's well you keep up the good work bob you're doing and by, and by the way uh as you know I'm a big fan and you you're you're hitting it out of the park you're doing good.
3: Thanks so much for taking the time Irving. I know you're busy. So, till next time. This is Bob Lefsetz.